Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. I actually think sport nutrition is quite a simple science. I think it's been massively overcomplicated. Anything that's got a degree of intensity into it, we're going to need to fuel it on carbohydrates. So you arrive at the same point on the scale, but with quite a different human being. Athletes have never been more confused. So it's not often we get to talk to a world-class sports nutritionist, but we are very privileged in our next interview to be interviewing Professor Graham Close, he was originally a professional rugby league player, and Graham is now professor in human physiology at Liverpool's John Moores University, where he combines his academic research with nutrition and physiology and consulting with many of the leading sporting codes, North in England and around the world. Um, as well as a leading, as well as having a master's degree in sports nutrition, Graham is currently the expert nutrition consultant to England rugby. He's also worked with uh, numerous professional soccer clubs as well. He works in tennis. He works in professional golf as, as well. And of course, uh, his passion, of course, is rugby league as well. Where he also spends a fair amount of his time. But uh, a man with a lot of on-field experience, but most importantly for us, a man who also understands the very important part of and controversial uh, area of nutrition in sport. Yeah, it's amazing to think we've done 55 shows and never really done sports nutrition. It comes up all the time, almost peripherally to what we're talking about, but this idea of like fueling the body is so fundamental and somehow we've made it this far without doing it. And that's partly because it's such a controversial and difficult one to broach. I've often thought about people who we should invite and then I think, okay, if I invite this person, there's going to be a whole army of people criticizing his selection. And then I invite another person, there'll be a whole bunch of people saying that we've corrupted ourselves by inviting her <laughs> instead of him and so on. And so eventually, I don't know why I didn't think of Graham soon. I remember hearing him present at a conference I went to in Bath in England a few years back. And he struck me as, A, extremely knowledgeable, but also just blunt and direct yeah. in a very thoughtful way. And this is the guy who I think is going to cut through the clutter and give us pearls when it comes to sports nutrition i hope anyway like viewers can be the judge of that but i, th I think it's a fantastic interview it is indeed so uh, listen up to our interview with professor graham close so welcome graham uh, welcome to the science of sport podcast uh, as uh, ross and i have discussed in the past woman in almost two and a half years of Podcasting, we've always been a little bit nervous to do anything on sports nutrition, um, mainly because it's kind of this uh, very murky place where finding an expert is often quite difficult, and, and even the most uh, credible experts are often seen as uh, can always be questioned. So, Ross, is that a fair summation of how we're nervous we are about sports nutrition? The problem with nutrition is there are too many experts and no, no good experts, I think. So, if, if we I've thought in the past about inviting person A on, but then you know there's an army of people who will have a go at person A. So you yeah. say, okay, lead to person B. And then the other side will say person B is a charlatan. So <laughs> the problem is is that there are too many experts 
in quotation marks and very few good experts, but we have one on the show today. So, well, Graham, you certainly are an expert. I mean, we've we've gone through your your quite significant bi- um, biography, and uh, is it is it fair to say that we should be nervous about sports nutrition then as a subject because it is so controversial and and to some extent quite polarizing? Yeah, you know, I don't think you should necessarily be nervous, but I can see why you were. And I think what's happened is to become an expert. Be Well, when I was a, an undergraduate student, I, the people I respected were my professors. And these days it's people with a social media presence. And to get a high social media presence, it almost seems like you need to polarise opinion. You need to um, have an extreme point of view. And what I think that's done is led to more confusion in this world than ever. So despite there being more and more qualified sport nutritionists and more um, research papers than ever, whenever I walk into a sports team, I've never seen more confusion in a topic area. And I think that's partly because of the vast amount of misinformation that is currently out there in the public domain. And when you say misinformation, is it is it is it marketers just trying to peddle a certain product or view that gives them some sort of commercial gain? Do you think that's the reason why there is so much noise out there? I think there's certainly a lot of commercial gain to be made, without doubt. Um, and a lot of people move into the nutrition space because of the commercial gain. You know, it's quite easy to sell a nutrition plan or nutrition supplement. So people move into certainly move into, into that domain. Um, I also think one of the big problems is that People want to believe that there is one ideal way to achieve a target. And what will, will often happen if we're giving them the benefit of doubt is that they may have tried 15 ways to get from A to Z. And the way that worked for them, they then become evangelical about, you know, and, and give this as this is the only way I tried everything and this is the only thing that worked for me, which might have been the best method for that individual, but doesn't mean it's the only way and certainly doesn't mean it's the optimal way for athletic performance. And I think that's another big thing that we need to get into at some point today is the difference between somebody wanting to look good on a cover shoot on a men's health magazine, mm. for example, and somebody wanting to fuel uh, winning performances. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. I mean, we're certainly, we're certainly aiming more towards fueling uh, winning performances rather than looking good on a men's health cover because I don't know whether any of us here could be on a men's health cover for sure. So we, sure we we're very, more we're more likely to be sporting achievers than men's health cover achievers. I'm sure, but we have some good looking listeners. We who might have be some good interested in that. But I think I think there is a topic of of the whether a performance diet is a healthy diet and and whether it should be used by by other people. I think there's certainly territory to cover there. That could be very useful. Yeah. Well, let's, let's all. I mean, let's. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to know what you're sort of you, you touched on it very briefly about. The fact that there is so much noise out there. We spoke to a sort of a, a, a nutrition psychologist a while back where, who talked about the fact that most of her clients were people who were coming to her after being on so-called fad diets. Is that a fair assessment in that a lot of people that come to you have been on fad diets but just don't seem to get anywhere in the long term? Yeah, I get people coming to me from all sorts, but the fad diets is certainly – one that is growing exponentially. And it only seems every few weeks that there's another fad diet that's been developed. And I actually gave a, a talk once on, on the general principles of all fad diets. And they all do the same thing. They all work in the exact same way. And the, the, the point number one is you create a set of rules. 
And the harder these rules are to follow, the more effective this diet will be. So <laughs> we, we could call it a Monday diet and you can only eat on a Monday. And guess what? You would lose weight by the end of, <laughs> of the seven days. Or, you know, and you can see this in the, you can't eat any carbohydrates. You can't eat any fats. You can only eat what a caveman ate. You can only eat green colored foods. So we come up with a set of rules and it's almost impossible to follow. So because of that, you eat less and you lose some body weight. Then it becomes popular because someone, generally a celebrity, will tweet about it and then it goes all over social media and then, great, I want to try it. The next stage is when it begins to fail, and that is when people think they can make money out of it. So the supermarket now have paleo biscuits or keto ice cream. Now suddenly the diet's not hard to follow anymore. Your calories increase, you put all the weight back on, and somebody else invents the next fad diet. Hmm. And if you look at any fad diet... They all work in that order whereby there's a set of rules. They're hard to follow because you can't buy them foods in your local supermarket. The supermarkets then start selling it. Not hard to follow anymore. You put all the weight back on. Uh, and then ultimately, they'll then come back to me who will say, Look, there are no secrets. Let's just get back to absolute basics and see how we can help. I mean, is it fair to say that fed diets, quite simply, is just many ways of just cutting calories? I believe so. The more that I research and study this world, the more I believe, certainly when it comes to weight control, that is the major uh, criterion here. Um, and whether you're going to do that by cutting out all carbohydrates or cutting out all fats or whichever way works for an individual, when it comes to weight control, obviously the issue is that when it comes to performance, it's a lot more than just what calories you're eating. It's where these are coming from and what intensity of exercise you're trying to fuel. And I think that's where there is a huge um, gap between what some people believe works in elite sport and what the actual elite athletes are really doing at the coalface. Do do you have a sort of, I mean, in a short way, I guess, as you say, every single client that you have and every single sporting code that you consult to has different requirements. Do you have a sort of... uh, a, a Graham Close philosophy around food? What What is, if you had to give it a sort of one line, what would it be? Yeah, I don't know if I could do it in one line. If you give me a couple of lines, I'll, I'll give I'll you a give couple a of lines. Yeah. Take, take as many as you need. Yesterday, yesterday I got asked to um, deliver a seminar to the England women's rugby team. Now, I, I mainly work with the men's team. And it was basically the Graham Close philosophy on on nutrition. So I'll try and summarise that talk very briefly. And, and the first thing I do is... I work on a few basic um, theories or um, sets of rules. So one of them, I talk about the three T's of nutrition, timing, type, and total. And I think every athlete should understand the total amount of food that we're eating, the type of foods, and the timing. So we're trying to understand the three T's. I'll then classify my athletes as one of the three M's, minimizers, maintainers, or maximizers. Yeah. So what are we trying to do from a body composition perspective? Are we trying to increase lean mass? Are we trying to decrease body fat? So then you're a minimizer. And then the final thing, and we published a paper on it at John Moore's with my colleague James Morton, this concept that we've now called fuel for the work required, which is when it comes to carbohydrates, we try and dictate the carbohydrate needs on the amount of work that's required. So when I'm building a diet for an athlete, I start off with getting the protein right, which is around about one and a half grams per kilogram body mass spread evenly throughout the day. I have a massive um, emphasis on on vegetables and fruits and 
you know, trying to get loads of micronutrients in. And then when it comes to the carbohydrates, I'm anywhere between, let's say, two grams per kilogram body mass and 12 to 14 grams per kilogram body mass, dependent on what work is required. So, you know, my colleagues who are working in pro cycling, if they're trying to fuel a mountain stage, you know, I've seen Sam Impey this week putting tweets out up at 16 grams per kilogram body mass. On a rest day, we might be down at two. So we really do embrace that fuel for the work required. And, and that's pretty much my philosophy, really. So basically, it's just, a, a, a say, as you said, it's impossible to put something like that into two sentences. It's more of a, when you're looking at somebody, you're looking at requirements of that individual and therefore tailoring a plan according to what they want to get out the other end. Correct. You know, yeah. when anyone says to me, whether it's Joe Public or an international athlete, you know, can I can you give me some advice on your diet? The first question I ask is, can I see your training plan? Yeah. And then we try and put the fuel strategy together, uh, bearing in mind the training plan. Because obviously, somebody who's training the host home with high intensity efforts, it's going to be very difficult different to you know a general office worker who's doing the occasional weekend warrior trek on, on the bike. So yeah, we would definitely try and base it around the effort required. And just based on what you've been telling us now, it sounds like in terms of what people eat, having a balanced diet with a focus on healthy, natural food seems to be the strategy. I mean, just making sure you eat lots of fruit and vegetables. I would imagine the classic examples of lean meats and that sort of thing are also right there as well. I mean, is there anything, would that, would, would that be a fair assumption to make? Yeah, and I think we've been through the supplement era. And that's not to say I don't think there's some supplements that are proven to be effective and we can use them. But when I first got involved as a consultant 10 years ago, some of the dining halls, are, I used to describe it as a sweet shop, where you'd look at the table and there might be a thousand supplements and people are going over, I'll try a bit here. So no idea what they're taking. And it really was a, a sweet shop mentality. And, and I've found by far the best results are where we get the actual diet right at the beginning And then we have a targeted supplement strategy that might include things like creatine, vitamin D, beta alanine, caffeine, you know, the few that we need. And if we need to help people hit the protein targets, we might then throw the occasional shaking. But I will certainly try and get there with food first before I go down that route. Mm. Yes, we certainly want to pick up on some of those supplements and pick your brain about those in a moment. I want to come back, though, to you spoke earlier about the – the, the, you start by looking at the one and a half grams per kilogram protein. I, I'm not going to profess to be an expert, but I know some people, for some people, that's quite contentious. They would argue that that's way lower than the requirement. They would say you need in excess of two to three grams per kilogram protein. What are your, your views on that dispute? And are there any circumstances where you would significantly go above your one and a half? Yeah. So, my reading of the literature and speaking with the, the protein scientists who I've got loads of respect for, like your Kevin Titsons and your Stu Phillips of, of this world, yeah. is that no matter what situation I, you know, we've studied, I've not seen anything that is more than around about 0.4 grams per kilogram body mass per meal as being a sufficient amount to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And then if we did that, Four four times a day, we're 1.5, 1.6 grams per kilogram uh, body mass, which is about twice what the RDA is, because as you'll know, the RDA is about 0.8 grams. Now, you've got to remember, Ross, you know, even though um, 
I look much younger. About 20 years ago when I was playing pro rugby, we were still being told that you don't need more than 0.8 grams per kilogram body mass. Right. And even though we all knew that you did need more. But we were, we were being told at that point. We now know that that's probably double. And in terms of any specific situations, there is some evidence from some work from Kevin Tipton that in um, calorie-restricted diets, increasing it to around the 2 gram per kilogram mark um, should be recommended perhaps to maintain lean mass whilst trying to drop some uh, some body fat. But the more I read the literature, I've not seen anything yet to convince me that going any higher than that offers any real advantage. Now, I don't think it's going to do any disadvantage, apart from the fact that we know that protein is one of the highest satiety foods. And I've often found in, in young rugby players trying to gain um, lean muscle mass, a mistake they make is just thinking they need to eat more and more protein. And actually, then that's at the expense of other macronutrients. Yeah. So I've found that sometimes reducing the protein and getting them to eat more carbohydrates and more fats has helped me to get that muscle mass on once we've got to that 1.6, maybe maximum 2 gram per kilogram uh, mark. Mm. So because I suppose there would be two paradigms or directions you could come at here. You could say, what's the calorie requirement per day? And then I'm going to deconstruct it into the yes. macronutrient contributions. But your approach seems to be to build up from the macronutrients and then arrive almost at a consequence as the calorie intake per day. Is that, is that fair or oversimplified or misunderstood? No, I, I don't know if, I've, if you've oversimplified it, but you're not a million miles off the mark. So if I get, you know, I'll try and if I can work out the energy expenditure and the energy requirements of the day. And let's say for argument's sake, I've worked that out to be that they need around about 3,300. Well, then to gain muscle mass, I'd probably want them in at least a 700 excess a day. So I want to try and get them to the 4,000 mark. And then, yeah, I would get the protein requirements right. And then based on the work required, then we'll start adding the carbohydrates and the fats to it to work up up to that mark. And, and often I find that we we do need to take advantage of some of the you know, the fats to actually hit that caloric requirement because, mm. you know, so I don't have ever tried to eat four or 5,000. You probably have, Ross, with your endurance, but some people find it really hard to eat that much. You know, it's a, it's a debate I've had a lot with, um, we're doing a lot of work with youth athletes at the moment and we measured using double labelled water, the energy expenditure of youth elite football players. And some of them had 5,500 calorie a day energy expenditure and we're trying to grow so yeah. we needed to get these kids on 6,000 calories bearing in mind we're at school all day and not eating very much at school so to try and get 6,000 into these actually takes some serious planning and in those situations we were just throwing in high calorie shakes and I don't mean shot bought shakes but I mean getting a good blender and throwing Greek yogurt avocado nuts berries right. honey just throwing in these big calories just to try and get the energy into them i guess the point i was or the the thing i want to try and explore is let's say you're a, a, a cyclist who's doing sort of five days a week of fairly high volume training cumulatively 15 16 hours but it's very much loaded to weekends and so my saturday sunday caloric costs are in the range of three three and a half to five thousand each the rest of the yeah. week slightly lower do I do I go for a day by day diet that varies quite significantly, 
Or do you take a broader view and say, let's look at the week because the body's not so sensitive to changes in, or fluctuations in nutrition and we rather manage it big picture than minute detail, if I'm making sense? Yeah. So we've really – and look, I know there's a lot of misinformation in nutrition as well, but I also believe that there's multiple ways to, to do things. And anyone who sits in front of you and says, this is the only way or the best way, uh, would be would be overconfident, I would say. What I would say is that to the best of my knowledge at the moment and in the situations I've tried and tested this in, I find that that fuel for the work required paradigm works well. Um, now, I work a lot in rugby, as you know, and I find that that works really well, whereby we change what we eat, certainly from a carbohydrate perspective, on a day-by-day basis. Right. So based in, on what work is required. So in the example that you said there, what I would want to make sure is that to fuel that long ride on the Saturday or Sunday, we were starting fully loaded. So I would want, if we were doing it on a Saturday, I would have a big carbohydrate day on a Friday, ready to fuel Saturday. And then Saturday, I would make sure I had a really good exogenous um, carbohydrate intake. And as I said, I know that the likes of James, when he was with Team Ineos or Sam Impey at the moment working in cycling, I've seen men tweet about, 16 grams per kilogram on the actual hard days. But then, you know, if there's a rest day early on in the week and the workload isn't high, then I would keep the protein steady, but I would reduce the carbohydrate on them days. And I think that's where a few years ago, there was two newspaper headlines in two days about England rugby's diet. Uh, And one of them said that England rugby eat too much carbohydrate. No wonder they're all fat. And the day after it said... We run out of energy against Wales. We don't eat any carbohydrates. No wonder we run out of energy. Yeah. And half here has a little smile, and other half me thinking, well, I appreciate people think I'm that important, but I really, I'm really not. The reality is that one journalist may have got into camp on a lower intensity training day when carbohydrate was pretty low, and another journalist may have got into camp the day before a game when carbohydrate was in every meal and presume that's how we eat all week, mm. where in reality, we really do feel for the work required. Mm, it's interesting because there is a paradigm that says don't sweat the tiny details, just be consistent in your diet and so on. Whereas you're actually arguing that carbohydrate, quote-unquote volatility, at least in volume, is, is quite an important thing to think about. Yeah, well, you've also got to think that on some days an athlete might be going through 7,000 calories and then another day it might be 3,000. And you could say, yeah, let's go for the, you know, the average of the week and let, let's go at it. But I also think that it, even from a mental perspective, I think quite like athletes like to have some variety in the diet um, and it can allow us to, to do that. What it can also allow us to do, and as you all know, the science hasn't been fully translated yet, but there is a literature around fueling some sessions with lower muscle glycogen yeah. to maximize adaptive response to exercise. Mm. So, you know, yes, all that has been based around mitochondrial enzymes, PGC1-alpha, things like that. Uh, there has been one paper that suggests that it does translate to actual better performance. But, you know, it's something that we have explored uh, it's something that we certainly believe could be effective. So that carbohydrate manipulation as well allows us to do some sessions deliberately lower 
to see if we can enhance mitochondrial biogenesis. Hmm. Last one, just before we leave that one, is you mentioned, say, 16 grams per kilogram. A lot of listeners don't automatically do the multiplication. So let's contextualize that. If, if we're talking about my example, say it's a, a 60 kilogram female rider, that's a kilogram of carbs a day, basically. It's 960 yes. grams. Give yeah. us an idea of how much that person's eating to do to match that. Uh, ridiculous amounts. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous amounts. Um, you know, you, the plates of rice are phenomenal, the sizes of it. You know, you'd be talking a particular large bowl of porridge in the morning with multiple um, pieces of fruit and maybe a couple of bagels to go along with it. Huge bowl of rice um, with, you know, again, fruit and things like that to go along with it. On the bike, you know, you would be talking, because we're now using these multiple transporter carbohydrates, around about 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour on the bike. So if we're on the bike for four or five hours, we're going to get, uh, you know, 360 to 450 grams in that way. And then back onto the rice, or we might have some rice cake on the bike as well. Um, may even throw some desserts in on these days as well. So it's something that you wouldn't advise for somebody who isn't doing 6,000 calories of exercise on a bike. Of course you wouldn't. And I think that's where there is a huge amount of confusion. What is an optimal diet for a Tour de France cyclist certainly isn't what it would be for a weekend warrior. I mean, we talk about, you know, just sticking on the theme of cyclists, when your team is working with professional cyclists, how do they measure because they obviously have to measure very closely how much expenditure there is per day and make sure they feel just enough so that there's no excess weight at any point um, during a tour or anything like that. So is it just a case of putting somebody on a scale at the start of a of the week and having a baseline from there? Yeah, I mean, it's my colleague James has done most of the work in cycling. I, I stick to sports where people punch each other a bit more like the rugby world, which is <laughs> more suited to a a working class lad from Wigan where I'm from. But, you know, I spoke with James a lot about the work he does in, in cycling. And yeah, it's the power meters on the bikes. It's, it's the weight. It's actually, they'll get to the point where each bit of food is weighed. So because you're only working with a, you know, a selective number, you, you can get as prescriptive as that where we're weighing the food out. It's actually hand-delivered to them to make sure that they get exactly what they need. And then the same with on the bike as well. The fueling strategy is completely mapped out and they know exactly where they need to be taken on board the exogenous foods and at what parts of the ride that they don't need it. So, yeah, completely measured, mapped out with multiple measuring tools to help them. Just on that, though, the, 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 the most listeners who track heart rate will have an estimate of calorie cost because whether yes. you use Polo or Strava or whatever it is, it estimates your calorie expenditure for a three-hour ride is going to be, I don't know, 1,800 calories, whatever it is. Yeah. If, you are, if you're able to measure power, like um, Graham has said, that becomes exceptionally precise because we know the efficiency to within a few percent. So if you've averaged 200 watts, we know that that's actually worth 200 joules per second. And if that was done over three hours, it's, I don't know, 180 times 60 seconds, and you can actually estimate very precisely what the energy cost is. So, so for power, them, it's easier. It's actually more difficult for rugby and football to estimate that calorie cost than it is cycling. So you're saying that power is a more accurate measurement of how much fuel you need rather than heart rate. Power literally is really? the fuel you're I using. Really because, I the other way around. Because remember, yeah. watts is joules per second. Right. So if I'm 20% efe- efficient and I'm burning 200, it's actually one-fifth, so that means 1,000. 
joules per second is my literally that's my energy cost to move at 200 watts sure so yeah. you know that and that's why they've got a massive advantage over me in a rugby world because yeah. unfortunately there yeah. is no device that has anywhere near that accuracy yeah. that I could put on a rugby player in a game but there just literally isn't you know people have tried to come up with equations from the accelerometers in the GPS units you know it's a whole new to- other topic for another day, but I think that's one up from guesswork, if I'm being completely honest. Mm. Um, and I think we can get just as good by a reasonable estimate from our experience. But you put the, the power meters on the pedals or, you know, as Ross said, now we've got very, very precise. And with all the other measurements that we can take from them, we can get a very precise understanding of what they need in a day and how that's going to change, whether they're doing a mounting stage or whether they're going to be on the flat. And, and, and as, you, as you said early on, but you know, I think cycling is probably the hardest sport to work in nutritionally because you can get it wrong either way so easily. You underfuel, you're not going to finish that stage. You overfuel, you're dragging too much weight up a mountain. So I would say of all the sports, that's probably the one where you know, the nutritionist really earns the money. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Is, is rugby then one of the easier ones purely because it's not necessarily about every gram that you have. You actually want to, you can eat pretty much to gain weight. Or is, what, what's the challenge in rugby? I guess the challenge in rugby is within my environment, I will have a 70 kilo scrum half and a 135 kilogram number eight in the same team. So trying to put the meal plans together when you've got a squad of 35 and you've got such extremes, you've got people trying to gain muscle mass, my maximizers, I've got my minimizers, Mm. I've got young uh, players coming at 18, 19, beginning of the nutrition journey. I've got old heads at 35, 36 who just want to get the maximum out of the career. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge. And also in terms of behavior change, you know, we generally feed in a buffer environment. So you've got people you are desperate to get some body fat off who you put in front of a buffet that's also designed for somebody (laughs) trying to get a load of lean mass on. So trying to convince them not to eat things sometimes is is a little challenging. And, and, and I guess the other big thing in rugby is recovery. You know, recovery is is absolutely everything these days. You know, the, the collisions, uh, the blunt force trauma is becoming more and more uh, extreme, I would say. And this is an area that Ross will know probably better than myself. Um, and help anything we can do to maximise recovery is becoming probably the, the key aspect. And that's where there's a lot of emerging supplements that some have got credibility and some don't. And we're, we're constantly dealing with that as well. Hmm. When it comes to sport like rugby, I mean, is it one of those sports where the lack of where the players from a semi-serious level are reasonably educated about food, 
So I guess what I'm leading to is when you look at rugby players, the upper echelons of the game, could they be fitter, more lean because they are not educated enough to be doing that to the optimum level? Or do you think rugby players are at a level where they understand their own physiology fairly well? Again, a massive mix. Um, there is no doubt that, you know, the numbers we're collecting are suggesting that the players are getting, still getting fitter, still getting stronger, still getting more muscle mass, getting lower body fat. Um, some of the the body fats and muscle mass on these players are just now phenomenal. I think when I was playing years ago, you had big lads and you had quick lads. And then you've got big, quick ones, you know, uh, the days of just having a, a very lean, low muscle mass winger who could do the 110 seconds has gone. We've now got a 120 kilo wingers who can do the 110 seconds. Mm. So, uh, and that's getting more and more each year. So I don't think we're anywhere near to say that they're as fit and strong as we can be. Um, you know, the, the more that we work in this space and the more professional that we're getting, um, yeah, the more extreme characters we're now seeing. And you only need to look at a modern-day Rebunion team, uh, and I get frightened just stood next to them. Um, mm. I'm glad I'm not at five foot five <laughs> and then at 80 kilos. I'm glad I'm not playing professionally anymore. It is interesting, that because we, we did an analysis. Well, I was the author of a paper published towards the end of last year where we looked at the Rugby World Cups going all the way back to 1991. So that's it's 30 yeah. years almost now. Well, it is. And the peak mass was reached in 2007. I haven't gotten collectively heavier since then, but there's no doubt that 120 kilograms in 2007 was a different 120 compared to 2019. So the composition is the difference. So in other words, they're more muscular now than them. Yeah, and Graham, mass. Graham alluded to it. It's like lean mass is higher, body fat's mm. lower. So you arrive at the same point on the scale, but with quite a different human being. And so the point is that the devil is in the details. If you only ask about mass, then you miss the story. So here's a general question I want to throw to you, Graham. Um, if, if you look at all the sports that you deal with, and obviously you've got a fair variety, what is the one sport that you think is, is, is the furthest away from using nutrition and good, and good habits around that that can benefit the most? I mean, there are obviously lots of very professional sports, but is there one sport that you think, oh, if they just had a decent nutritionist, they would be 20% better? Anything that stands oh, out for you? Yeah, there's a few in different ways. If you'd asked me a few years ago, I'd have said without doubt jockeys and horse racing. <laughs> yeah. Because when we first got involved in, in the horse racing industry, the way that jockeys made weight was starvation-type diets, forced vomiting, uh, sweatsuits and laxatives, <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. try and hang on for as long as you can onto the horse and hope it doesn't throw you off. Now, you know, fortunately, the, the jockey industry has embraced the research, and, you know, my team at John Moore's has done a load of research into better ways to make weight, and now we're making some some big strides there. Um yeah, I think potentially, without being you know too controversial, I think some of the combat sports would benefit a lot from a more structured way of making weight. And I know that some of my colleagues at John Moore's, like Carl Langan-Evans and James, I've mentioned a couple of times, they're doing some great work with the combat sport athletes and helping them to arrive at fight time 
on weight rather than trying to drop 10, 10 pounds in 24 hours. So I think that the more combat sport athletes who embraced the sport nutrition and sports science to help them make weight more safely, I think they would see some huge improvements in performance. Let's get on to some of the, I guess, more general questions, and you guys can add in some science as you go along. So we touched very briefly on supplementation. Are you a person that is – do you think supplements are necessary across sports, or do you think they're becoming less and less relevant now? And I suppose, sorry, just my addendum to that is we've already touched on, like, the supplements, the macronutrient-type stuff, but – yeah, we're expanding that also, I think, to caffeines and yeah, nitrates and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's more the it's more the kind of protein shakes and oh, see, okay. carbs and that those sort of traditional supplements. So, and we can talk about the specific ones as we go on. But I'm always fascinated uh, to know as to how important it is for us to, you know, if you eat a good diet, do you actually need to supplement? I think with some of the the macronutrient ones that you just said. If you could get it from a food perspective, then I'm more and more convinced that there isn't a need. So you said the protein shakes, for example. Ultimately, all that is is processed milk, isn't it? You know, we, we get the milk, we separate it into its curds and whey, uh, and then we, we drive away and we um, we sell it. Now, what used to be a waste product and fed to pigs as pig feed, the whey protein, we've now realised that actually you can probably sell that for more expensive than the actual cheese. So what was once a waste product of cheese? Cheese is almost now the waste product of making whey protein. (laughs) Um, But actually, you know, is there any evidence out there, any real solid research that that's better than eating some fish or some chicken? I'm really not convinced that there is. You know, it's a convenience, so you might, you know, and again, if I've done a really hard training session, sometimes I find it hard to eat for a while. So actually then a shake uh, might be useful, but... I certainly don't think there's anything magical in there. The one that makes me laugh is now and again when I recommend a shake to somebody, you know, particularly say a young female athlete, and they say to me, but I don't want to get all muscly and muscle bound. My answer is, if only life was so simple. (laughs) If if only that's all you had to do to get all that muscle mass on, just take a protein shake and suddenly you're going to look like you've been lifting weights all your life. Um, And then the carbohydrates. I think the carbohydrate gels can be useful on the bike just for a convenience, but, you know, is it a necessity? Um, no, I don't think so. Once we then come on to the more specific ones that Ross was mentioning, where there is a literature base, well, then I guess it's a slightly different story. So, I mean, without we can talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the question we always ask, because this fluctuates up and down every couple of years, where people, particularly in the endurance space, are always talking about, are carbs in or out? And there are tons of vegan cyclists and there are people who are banting and low-carb diets when they ride. I mean, we probably know what your answer is going to be, but maybe you could reiterate your view on carbs and endurance sport. Uh, For me, the literature is pretty simple and pretty solid. But if you want to do high-intensity efforts, you want to get up, you know, a sprint finish or a mountain stage or anything that's got a degree of intensity into it, we're going to need to fill it on carbohydrates. Hmm. So if you want to ride, you know, stage one of the Tour de France, for example, you know, I looked at some of the heart rate data on that, and I think I'm right in saying that something like Chris Froome, stage one of the Tour de France a few years ago, didn't get above 110 beats per minute. 
You know, he literally could have put a basket on the bike <laughs> and gone to his shop to get the shopping. So you can fuel that on pretty much anything. That's fine. Get to one of the mountain stages where, you know, the, the race is won and lost. We're fueling them on carbohydrates. And I don't know anyone who would argue that with you. Um, even when you speak with people at the extreme end of it and you get them in a one-on-one situation and you talk about this level of intensity, then I think that is pretty, pretty clear. And we also know that a prolonged lower-carbohydrate diet um, can decrease things like PDH, pyruvate dehydrogenase activity, so a key enzyme that we need to allow us to utilize carbs for these high-intensity efforts. So what we might be doing is instead of spurring carbs, we're maybe impairing our ability to use them. So there are some prolonged detrimental effects of that. So I guess it depends what you're trying to achieve. If you're a weekend warrior who just wants to go out on the bike, pedal for five or six hours, and lose a bit of body fat, well, then eh, you can do what you want, really, to an extent. If you want to win a Tour de France or win a World Cup at rugby, I'm still convinced that carbohydrates are king. Can we can we pinpoint an intensity at which that um, necessity emerges? You know, you talk about any reasonable intensity, and you, you can give the example of Froome or anyone riding a relatively yeah. flat day at a sedate pace, but at what point... Does the like without needing laboratory tests? Is it is it sort of a ventilatory threshold when breathing becomes more difficult than talking? Is that where like just to give people practical? Yeah, and, and you know you're right. Without the laboratory test, you could try and get it on on, on that exactly say, Ross, when you couldn't really maybe sustain a conversation. You know, and, mm. and most people would would understand what that that feels like. Mm. Um, we know, don't we, that you've got about enough carbohydrates stored for about 60 minutes of real eyeballs out effort. So if we're going to be doing something where we know we're going to be fatiguing within that 60 minutes, well, we, we know for a fact that that's going to need carbohydrate. But I think in terms of what you're saying, that ventilatory threshold, I think when we're getting to the point where um, speaking to some, you'd rather not speak to a person next to you, whether that is because you don't get on as well with Mike as what you pretend to do on this podcast, or whether because... <laughs> you're really blowing and you need to suck it in a little bit more. Um, I think that will be a good indication, but we're probably going to need to fuel that on something different than our stored fat reserves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think it's good. I mean, I I guess for most of us in the space, it's fairly obvious that you answer that way, but I think it's good to hear from somebody with your experience to suggest that you can't, you know, fuel things just on protein. And I mean, I've heard stories of people in the days, I don't know whether it was the same with you in the UK, here in South Africa, when we had the banting craze, I used to hear of cyclists going out and taking full cream milk in their water bottles, because that was how they refueled, because they didn't want to drink any sugars, they just wanted protein. And it, it got to the point of almost being, you know, not, it got to the point of ridiculousness um, with these sort of things. I mean, did you find that that, that that was the same mentality that some of the people that you experienced where they come in with these really like extreme yeah. views on things like no no carbs, therefore I'm drinking milk in my water bottle? Yeah. And, and Mike, these things go in circles. So mm. I was out for dinner a few weeks ago with um, one of my former PhD students' parent. Um, so Marcus Hannon, who's a nutritionist who works for me, his dad was once a very elite marathon runner who just happened to be good friends with Ron Mon, you know, one of the world's greatest yeah. sport yeah. nutritionists. Mm. And he was saying that when he was, you know, in, in his early 20s, when he was running two fifteen marathons, so, you know, a good marathon runner 
back in, you know, back 30 years ago, something like that. Ron actually said to him, why don't you try fueling the race on cream? And, you know, so this was tried 40 years ago. <laughs> we can go back even further. You know, there's, there's papers in the 1900s where this is – because it, it, in principle, if we could fuel it on fats, then great, because, as I said, you know, the average person's got about enough carbohydrate to fuel about 60 to 90 minutes max. Most of us in modern society could fuel about 60 to 90 years on our fat reserves, <laughs> some of us more than others. So in theory, if we could rip into these, then great. You know, and people have talked about, well, you need to get more fat adapted. And, you know, I've seen research papers that have gone out to about six or seven weeks and still we're seeing impairments in performance. Mm. And how many weeks would a coach accept impaired performance for potential fat adaptation to take place exactly. where potentially it may be or may not be as good as carbohydrate? Yeah. So I don't know how many weeks we would be prepared to um, to allow this to run out to. So, yes, I've seen these extremes. But I think the key thing to point out is there's nothing new. There really is nothing new. Mm. This has all been... You know, Louise Burke, who I've seen get a lot of criticism for her position, but she's taken on carbohydrate. You know, the early part of Louise, people forget that the early part of her career, she was trying to prove that you could fuel all this on fats. You know, she was really trying to make this work and then just couldn't. So, yeah, you know, people think that we're behind the times sometimes when we say that, look, we do believe carbohydrate is king for these events and think we've never heard of Banting or never heard of a, a keto diet. You know, this is decades old. It, it just doesn't work in the scenarios that I'm certainly working in. doesn't take much, though, for people to capitalize on, on rumor about this. I remember in 2015, I was in, in London staying in the same hotel as the All Blacks were. And so I saw what they were eating leading up to that World Cup that they won. And it was just, I mean, the buffet was carbs. It was carbs, 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 then a little bit of meat, then more carbs, then meat. Yet still, I remember reading newspaper articles about how the All Blacks won the World Cup on a keto diet. And I don't know whether that, I mean, that must bother you as a nutritionist because you're going to spend a lot of time and energy, A, explaining why that perception's wrong, then refuting it, and then trying to correct the behavior. Without doubt, and I know the exact newspaper headline you're talking yeah. about. I've got it in one of my presentations here because I use it <laughs> in as an example. And it was something like, New Zealand fuel the World Cup win on on a high fat diet. Yeah, and, and then when you you read into the article a bit more, what you realise is that the head of conditioning at the time followed a high fat diet himself, but the team has a high carbohydrate diet. <laughs> so a better newspaper headline would be New Zealand rugby's conditioner likes a high fat diet, although the players eat carbohydrates. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sell as many newspapers, and you know, and I know that at the time, uh, and I think she's still there. New Zealand had a world class sport nutritionist. She's, she's absolutely excellent, and, and I know the type of diets that they were on, and I can guarantee you. And, and I guess it's a bit like I said before, isn't it? But I saw similar headlines on England rugby. And um, it was a couple of few years ago when Chris Froome won the Tour de France. There was a similar headline that said, great news for the keto people. You know, Chris Froome won the Tour this, de France yes. yeah. on a low-carb low diet. And, you know... That very same day that newspaper headline was out, I was sat next to James Morton. He was delivering a presentation at ISENC, the Sports Nutrition Conference, covering what his diet was. And it was up to 12 to 14 grams per kilogram carbohydrate in the mountain stages. But the Twitter warriors are just adamant. They won't believe you either. Nope, I've read a newspaper headline. 
and that's far more informative than the bloke who gives him his food. Twitter knows best. Yeah. And you, unfortunately, you can't win a Twitter argument, so I try not to get involved in them. I remember we, we've got an ultra-distance race called the Comrades Marathon. It's 89K or something. Um, mm. And a couple of years back, the winner was a woman called Caroline Wistman. And a picture was circulated on Twitter of, an, of a breakfast consisting of eggs and bacon saying, this is what Caroline ate at the start. And look, she's winning the race. You can do this without carbs. And it got momentum because it was shared by mm. Tim Noakes, who you'd know <laughs> as yeah. the, the high priest of panting in South Africa. And she finished the race having won it and subsequently corrected the misconceptions. She said, that wasn't mine. That was what my brother ate for breakfast. I ate porridge. <laughs> But the thing is, this stuff yeah. this stuff is accelerated to the speed of light so quickly, and it takes well, it's impossible to put it back in the in the bottle once it's out. And yeah, so. uh, uh, Chris Froome was another good example. He tweeted a picture of having some eggs and avocado for breakfast, but with the tweet, it was it said something like "rest day breakfast." Mm. And people, as I said, you know, I know that they utilize that fuel for work required concept. Rest day, there you go. You know. Unfortunately, he didn't tweet the day after the picture of this mountain of rice. Right. That's what people latch onto. And it's classic confirmation bias, isn't it? You know, yeah. they only want to retweet or read what hits their beliefs. Uh, and unfortunately, that takes us right back to where we started about that. You really need to have almost extreme views. And hopefully, what's coming across today is where I walk in both worlds. And because of that, you don't normally get podcast invites until, well, thank you very much for, um, for changing that. It's fine. Uh, Mike, will, Mike will hype up the balance. He'll make balance sound sexy. What, <laughs> what is the most important uh, component of a person's BS detector when it comes to nutrition? Like what should a listener be most alert to, to say, actually, I'm reading this and it's nonsense, aside from the fact that maybe they're reading it on Twitter, but any other than that? Or in the Daily Mail. Yeah, I think, yeah. That, I think that's the starting point, isn't it? Well, yeah. you know, we... We used to judge experts on their academic qualifications or where they've worked, and these days it's on number of followers. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think let's look at the source of the information is one. Uh, and, and the second one, it's a classic, and it seems too good for to be true. It probably is. You know, I'm sure we'll move on to nitrates maybe a little bit later. But, you know, when the nitrate stuff came out, you know, the immediate newspaper headlines were like a 30% improvement in performance. Yeah, but just think well, about great. what that that's means. That's great. That's a salt. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're going to go from two hours and whatever, two hours and a few seconds. That's given us a, you know, a 150-something. Yeah. Done. Yeah. We don't need fancy shoes or drafting or lasers or whatever. We just have a bit of nitrates. Now, of course, we know that's not going to be the truth. And, it, and it, as it transpired, you know, that was in untrained individuals, maybe, et cetera, um, et cetera. Maybe let's actually take this opportunity to go that way because I was actually even listening to a couple of podcasts during the tour and they were advertising nitrates as the way to unlock your metabolic potential and performance, etc. Maybe you can just explain very quickly the premise of the nitrates, that early work by, by Andy Jones and, and what, it me- what it was meant to do. Yeah, and, and look, it's, it's excellent work and what I've just said there is by no means any, any criticism but please don't see it that way. Is that we know that Foods such as beetroot, which are rich in um, dietary nitrates. So these nitrates in the mouth by mouth bacteria converted into nitrite. And then nitrite being the alternate, or whether alternate's the right word, but we'll call it that pathway for the production of nitric oxide. Mm. And then elevated nitric oxide has been shown in certain exercise situations 
to lower the oxygen cost of that exercise. Right. So if we was going for a run and we'd normally working at 65% of VO2 max, and that'll be working at 62. So actually it'll feel easier and we'll be able to work harder for longer. Is the mechanism, the sorry to interrupt you, is the mechanism still thought to be vasodilation? So nitric oxide is a vasodilator, and is that still thought to That's be the... That's certainly one of the most pro- pronounced mechanisms. But what I think with all these things is that we really honestly don't know. Mm. Um, if you actually think about nitric oxide, you know, it's also a reactive oxygen species. So it's going to change redox balance. It's going to do lots of other things mm. in the body. Um so, but yeah, that's certainly the vasodilator is one of the more um, prominent mechanisms of which it may be effective. So, so yeah, the, the early work was done in untrained individuals, steady state type exercise, and it did have a real pronounced effect. And then as a, the follow-up studies are done in highly trained in more realistic race situations, we see a modest effect, but nowhere near the same. That's not to say I'm knocking a modest effect because as we know at the elite end, mm. can you really measure what is a meaningful effect at the elite end when when margins are so fine? But certainly, it's going to be nowhere near the 20 30% benefit that, that maybe people are reporting with it. Um, so I, I've got a few caveats on a lot of this stuff. And I summarised it in a paper that I wrote, Ross, that I called um, From Paper to Podium. Okay. Um, this paper was all about the difficulties in trying to translate um, sports science nutrition research into winning performances. Uh, an example I often cite, you know, if I move away from nitrates for a second, is caffeine. Yeah, we're so we ask know you about that, that about two to three milligrams per kilogram body mass of caffeine is the perfect amount in a lab to get the, the effects that we're looking for. And we can discuss the effects in a second if you want. So how but, many coffees is that? How many Red Bulls is that? Yeah, so two to three milligrams per kilogram. If we're talking about an 80-kilogram cyclist, we're looking at 160 to 240 milligrams. So um, two to three strong espressos. Okay. But what we've got to remember is that all that research was done in a calm, controlled laboratory setting. Now, I started to question some of this because one of the things that we know that caffeine is going to be is like a mental stimulus, you know, being an adenosine antagonist. So I was walking out at Twickenham the day before a match, and it wasn't even match day. And I started getting excited, and I'm not even playing. I'm a nutritionist running out with a water bottle. (laughs) And I started thinking, how are these players going to feel tomorrow? with fireworks and 80,000 people going off. And now that two to three milligrams per kilogram of caffeine, which is the perfect amount in a quiet, calm laboratory environment, what's that going to do tomorrow when we've already got a heightened adrenaline response and everything else going with it? So I do sometimes wonder about the translational ability of some sport nutrition research and how adamant we get with, no, two to three milligrams is ideal when actually we've never really tested that in anything like the real world. Interesting. 
Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to bring it down to the, what the real word, world means then. So you're saying then in, in that caffeine, you're still not sure of the effects of caffeine because the testing, for instance, the cyclist going to ride on a Sunday morning, having a double espresso before you leave. I mean, we all know that probably has quite a good effect. Um, yeah, instead in of that having situation, the sugar with the caffeine. definitely be useful. Yeah. Uh, and what we also know is that, well, we used to think the effects of caffeine was very much physiological and you needed a high dose, maybe up at eight milligrams per kilogram body mass. When I first got into this world, that's what was being advised. And that was a point where we thought it was going to help with um, promoting fat oxidation and potentially spurring muscle glycogen. I think a lot of that has kind of been dismissed now and it's much more on the, the neural side, the effects it's having as a, an adenosine antagonist, which is decreasing the perception of effort uh, and actually decreasing that perception of fatigue. So someone doing a two or three hour prolonged ride on a bike, then yes, I think it could be useful. But I know a lot of rugby players will take it because of that let's get stimulated type effect. And I do wonder, do we run the risk of overstimulating when we've got also mm. the adrenaline of walking out in front of a, a full Twickenham? Fortunately, most of us will never play at that level. And if you're playing rugby on a Sunday afternoon, maybe it might be quite useful but that's why with everything in sport nutrition I do try and bring it back to the individual and try and work out what works for the individual rather than what is there a meta-analysis on that works for the majority Just some quick fire questions at you, breakfast, how important is it? Is it important? Well, I guess it depends how we define breakfast if you don't break Lots of the people fast, who say I'm only going to eat between 8 and 12 o'clock during the day, okay. the fastest. Because I say if you don't break the fast, so you don't have breakfast, well, then you'll starve and you'll die because you've not broken the fast. <laughs> but does that mean that you need to eat when you first wake up in the morning? I don't think so. I think that literature has been a little bit taken out of context. Um, there is some evidence that if you miss breakfast through perhaps being disorganised, the chances are you may eat more in the context of the day. Mm. And that's why some people believe that missing breakfast will make you overweight. But if you deliberately miss it as part of a calorie reduction protocol and then eat in a standardized way for the rest of the day, um, certainly from a weight management perspective, there's evidence that that may help. Although there is some evidence that it might may be detrimental to afternoon performance. So there's lots of, it depends on that one, but in terms of who first said it's the most important meal of the day, as far as I can see, that was Kellogg's cornflakes uh, <laughs> in an advertising campaign to try and get people uh, eating breakfast. So I've not seen any real evidence that it's the most important meal of the day, unless you take it literally as meaning you've got to break the fast. And then of course it is all you die. Is there any merit? And I know there is a school of thought here when it comes to hydration, for instance, people talk about ad libitum and drinking as you feel. Is there any merit to suggest that nutrition could be done in the same way? In other words, eat as you feel rather than what you need. And that would that apply to sport and performance? And notwithstanding what you just said about having to make up and looking at calorie deficits yeah. when you're doing high intensity sport, do you eat as you feel? Is, is that a reasonable strategy? I think it depends what sport you're doing, really. I don't think that's effective for the, the endurance sports that we talked about because I don't know how many people, and, and I've never been, you know, if you took a look at me, you'd know I'm not an endurance athlete. You know, I, I break in a hot sweat watching the Tour de France. 
You know, I'm much more of a speed-based athlete. You know, <laughs> rugby was my game. But I don't know many people who really do enjoy eating 90 grams of hour of carbohydrate on a bike. And we do know some of the work from Asker Yukondrup would suggest you need to train your gut mm. to be able to tolerate that amount. I also know some rugby players that I work with who have said that they're looking forward to when they retire, being able to eat normally again, rather than the huge amounts that they need to try and sustain that lean muscle mass that they've got. So I think at the extreme ends of sport, you probably do need to retrain your body into taking on the foods that we need to be optimal for performance. Just a thought on that is early on you spoke about the three T's. <clears throat> it was type, timing, and and, uh, and total. Total. Yeah. I feel like if, if I was to try and listen to my body, I would get maybe the total right. But I would I would really struggle to hear what my body was telling me about the type and, and the timing perhaps because yeah. I'd know when I was hungry. But I don't know if, if people are connected enough anymore because we're also so exposed to emotional eating and other stimuli that drive eating that I reckon, unlike fluid, where we've got a very sensitive thirst mechanism, I'm not sure that the type is something we can hear our bodies telling us about. Yeah. Unless it's something like, I, I need salt or I need sugar. But 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 generally, I reckon I'm, I'm deaf to type. <laughs> I think to some extent, Ross, we're deaf to all three of the T's in some ways. Yeah. I think if we was to eat probably how our body wanted us to eat, which was you know lean meats, lean vegetables, good fibrous carbohydrates, etc., then I think for total, our appetite would dictate that we're, we're pretty much full. I think... Because we've got, in modern society, calorie-dense foods coming out of our ears, I don't think we can then read our totals very well anymore. Mm. So, mm. you know, when I was growing up, if, if you had a hot drink, you had a, an instant coffee with a splash of milk, didn't you? So you maybe had a 15-calorie drink. Now we have a frappuccino, mappuccino <laughs> latte, which is more like 300 calories. And then we're in a coffee shop, which has become so popular – and you might, oh, we'll go on, we'll have a muffin while we're in here. I was going to say, you don't only have a coffee. When we, exactly. when we cycle, we don't just stop there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we've had a frappe mappuccino or whatever they're called <laughs> with um, a caramel deluxe muffin as a snack. And we're now eating 1,200 calories. So we've had half of our daily food intake in this little let's walk past our favourite coffee shop. So I think if you we was to eat how we all probably know is a healthy way to eat, we'd be pretty good at the, the total. Hmm. But I think if we eat the way that we all prefer to eat, I don't think we're very good at the total. And then you're right on the timing. We know that the research tends to suggest that most people with a protein backload the day. They might get up in the morning, maybe a piece of toast, coffee, get on with the day, grab something on the go, be a busy, hectic lifestyle at lunch, maybe a packet sandwich. And then in the evening, we might sit down and cook some, some meat, etc. So we tend to backload our day with protein. And a lot of the literature by the likes of Jose Aretta and people like that would suggest that when it comes to optimizing our muscle protein synthesis, having that 0.4 grams per kilogram body mass regularly throughout the day to get to our 1.6 is a far better way for the timing of our protein intake. So I do think that, you know, we do really need to think about all three of MTs, total type of food, you know, carbs, fats, proteins, mm. timing of it. And if we can get that right, we're 90% birds help athletes with a diet. 
I was going to say, you're talking about proteins in terms of back-ending the day with proteins, but I imagine that the biggest challenge is most people back-end their day with carbs, really. They have that big evening meal, and that's the one that causes all the problems. Yeah, I think um, that more equal distribution throughout the day seems to be a, a much better mm. way to try and do things. Um, having said that, I know some evidence has suggested that from a pure weight loss perspective, that intermittent fasting can help some people where we have, we only eat within a certain window. Now, the detriment there is a potential to lose lean mass because we've not fed protein regularly throughout the day. Um, but ultimately, that's only work, like we said, right at the very beginning. But if you're only eating in a three-hour window, the chances are that your total caloric intake for the day will be will be a lot lower. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think from an athletic perspective, that more even distribution, I'm more and more convinced is the way forward. Without to- mentioning any names, do you have any um, good stories to tell us about diet challenges or diets that you know of top sportsmen that are a little bit odd or extreme? Ah, without giving any names. <laughs> Do you know what? Um, no, obviously, <laughs> with, um, I said the internet is a bane of my life. The other bane of my life is um, Netflix. <laughs> so just coming up to the, the Rugby World Cup final, the um, Netflix documentary, The Game Changers, came out. Yeah. The, the vegan propaganda uh, yeah. documentary and believe it or not I was getting I'd come back from Japan by then and I was getting messages people saying should I go vegan this week and you're like wow we're building into a World Cup final and people asking about should I go on a, a plant-based exclusive diet so um, I think I often get asked by players about extremes but um, fortunately I don't have too many that have given ridiculous challenges. So you've had nobody coming along and say, I only eat beetroot three times a day or anything like that? <laughs> no, no. Fortunately, again, working in rugby, um, I think people have realised that that really wouldn't be uh, conducive. You know, I do have had, do have some jockeys who, um, you know, basically said they can't eat. You know, whenever I eat food, you know, I'll put on too much weight and you say, okay, let's go through your day. And it's like, I have a cup of tea with four sugars at breakfast and five digestive biscuits. And, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to, yeah. you do know I could substitute that for like an omelette with vegetables and spinach and peppers. And they're like, no, I couldn't eat that. There's no way I put weight on I eat that. And you're like, it's a numbers game. Yeah. Trust me, you could eat that. <laughs> rather than eat your cup of tea with five sugars and four digestive biscuits. So in, in the jockey world, there was a serious amount of re-education needed. Yeah. Um, a couple of questions related to that. The one is maybe triggered by the jockey thought. Elite athletes and eating disorders, and I'm not talking now about the sort of anorexia that puts people yeah. into clinics and is potentially life-threatening. I'm talking... Maybe that actually, but also the more subtle presentation. I mean, do you see that a lot and how do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, um, we would tend to term that as disordered eating as yeah. opposed to an eating disorder. Okay. Um, and, you know, it is becoming more of an issue. Um, unfortunately, what you often get is a strange comment like, want to get really lean. You know, I feel like I'm too too much body fat, I want to be leaner. 
and you can't trace it back to performance. You trace it back to aesthetics and how they want to look on their Instagram profile, mm. which has often been a you know a strange one, but but uh, you know I, I have had to deal with. Um, there has been a growing prevalence of carbophobia, uh, yeah. even though people have realised it's detrimental to the performance, but they may look a little bit leaner and, and like the, the way that they're feeling more. And then obviously in, in some sports we do get uh, incidents of form eating disorders. And then at that point, of course, it's a referral and it's, hmm. it's treatment and it's help and it's support and it's trying to help them to find a much better way to do it. But I do think there's a growing prevalence of disordered eating and people eliminating food groups because of perceived benefits rather than actual uh, any real uh, evidence. You know, there's a lot of people feel that they need to eliminate certain foods because we believe we've read that it's bad for you, you know, so more and more are eliminating dairy, for example. Yeah. And then, you know, we then need to work out where's the calcium coming from, etc. you know, with, with the plant-based athletes, often there's been no consideration of things like B12 uh, from an athletic perspective, creatine, things like that. So, mm. but yes, it's becoming probably more common, I would say, but the disordered eating than what it was 10 years ago when I was working in this space. And in the elite athlete space, do you, you remember, was it 2016? I think 2012, maybe. There was a news headline and a big controversy around Jess Ennis, I think where the coach said she needed to lose weight. Um, and we've seen similar last year, in fact, with Salazar and Mary Kane came out and said that the obsession with weight in that camp led her to develop these eating disorders. And she was going for three-hour walks with weights on her ankles just to try and lose additional weight. So I wondered what your advice would be to athletes in what we could call weight-sensitive sports where – societally their normal weight but maybe they know that a couple of kilograms a little lighter might benefit them but it becomes then an unhealthy obsession and how you manage that for that person i i think that's the biggest challenge we've got in our sport ross and thanks for taking us down a real controversial uh, route <laughs> i think the biggest problem is when coaches sometimes pluck numbers out of the air mm. and you know and they'll just be like yeah this person needs to lose a kilogram mm. you know where's that come from uh, coaches i and actually when you speak with the athlete they know, and, and we know that underfueling is probably a bigger, well, definitely a bigger problem than maybe carrying that little bit of, if it's half a kilo of, of body fat. And as we know, you know, athletes can become obsessive and it, and it can lead to things that we don't want. Now, look, don't, that's not to get me wrong, where we also know that in some sports, you know, we've talked about cycling a few times today, but, you know, carrying a couple of kilos of excess body fat up a mountain, simple maths as you did at the beginning, isn't it? Mm. You know, you know, you're going to need more watts to get up that mountain. But if you underfuel it by trying to be um, bang on weight, by un but when you end up underfueling it, then that's probably even more detrimental. Mm. So I, I think there's probably a time and a place for these conversations and certainly around performance I wouldn't say is the, the time or the place um, and for me it's got to be athlete led you know I think it's got to be a decision that the athlete makes um, rather you know I, I wouldn't come up to a, an athlete and say I think you need to drop a kilo um, mm. I don't think that that's my space I really don't and you know maybe that's me being soft but if the athlete wanted to I'm there to help them and do, help them to do it sensibly 
So let's say I've got two questions left and then see what Mike's got left for you. Um, let's say the athlete has come to you and said, I've, I'm looking at three kilograms. Um, I'm an endurance athlete, whether it's a runner, cyclist, rower, you can take your pick. How, how within your three T's sort of philosophy do you deal with that? Is it total timing or type or a little bit of everything? What's the advice to someone looking to lose it's weight but maintain training quality? Yeah, so the first thing I would do is I'd say I would make sure that the calorie restru- uh, restriction doesn't come from protein. So Kev Tipton a few years ago with Sam Metlod was a, was a lead author. They showed that if you just cut the calories across the board, then you will lose more weight, but some of that weight will be lean muscle mass. So we've got to make sure that the protein stays high. Mm-hmm. Then my preferred way of doing this is to fuel around the training so we're still fully fueled for them training sessions, but try and create the calorie deficits away from the training. Right. Well, by the end of the day, we're in a calorie deficit, but what we've actually done is fuel that training session. Mm-hmm. Now, I know some people prefer another way to do fasted training and then refuel at the end, but my preferred way is that other one where we'll fuel the training session, we'll, do, we'll recover it okay, we'll keep the protein high, and then in terms of the three Ts, I will get the calories down as the day progresses, which often has to be carbohydrate because most athletes are on a pretty low fat diet anyway. And I don't want to drop it from protein because what I said about uh, maintaining muscle. So the only macronutrient I've got left is to trim the carbohydrates a bit down as the day goes on. Hmm. Yeah. And and it's the, the reason you would go with that paradigm as opposed to let's train in a fasted state because your non-negotiable is the training quality must be defended. Certainly the world that I work, you know, yeah. if I was to do something to an athlete and they blew up in training, didn't perform as well, I'm potentially affecting their selection on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah. So they've got, you know, that's the, that's the difficult paradigm that I've got in the elite world that I work in. And, and in, a, in a sport like rugby, it's also then an injury risk, isn't mm. it? If someone's low carb, blood sugar's a little bit low in the training session, decision-making's impaired, get their head in a bad position you know, I'm increasing an injury risk in my Mm, opinion. mm. So I like to fuel that training session properly and create the calorie deficits away from it. That's not to say I'm not uh, adverse to the occasional morning fasted, let's say, walk bike session where it really doesn't matter. It's not performance related. Mm. But if it was a field-based session in in my sport of rugby, then no, I wouldn't be under-fueling that for a weight loss scenario. Yeah. And then last question for me is, specific and i know this is difficult always because it always it depends but advice to women athletes where do they most need to focus on on making adjustments within what we've discussed yeah you know i'm fortunate that i'm good friends with kirsty elliott sale who's done a lot of work in this space and again i think this is another area where there's a lot of misinformation And, and what you'll find is that there is Diet plans out there that says at certain phase of the menstrual cycle, we need to make these changes to the diet and everything like that. And the more I read and the more I speak to experts, is that we just can't do that as yet. Mm. It's very much individual. So you might have a certain female athlete at a certain time of her menstrual cycle feels very different to another athlete at that same stage of her menstrual cycle. Um, What I would say is it's probably important for athletes to understand their own cycle. You know, I sit with Kirsty a lot about the benefits of female athletes um, doing self-ovulation tests just to see 
when they're ovulating, if they're ovulating, etc. Fill a diary in themselves, how they feel at different stages of the menstrual cycle. You know, so they'll know themselves. Do you feel more fatigued? Do you feel, um, do you find it harder to take exogenous fuel on board at this stage? And then we can put a plan together for the individual. But I don't think we're at a stage yet where I can um, give a cookie cutter style program to Mm. an athlete and say, right, days one to four of your cycle, you need to eat this and then you need to switch to this and then you need to switch to that. Um, But I would advise any female athlete to understand their own cycle, speak to the nutritionist about it and try and put optimum nutrition around what's best for you. Mm. Very good. So the burning question, and I only have one question left, actually. The burning question is, what did you have for breakfast this morning, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? You've, uh, you've asked me on a bad day because <laughs> I was actually doing a favour for a friend and I went doing some body composition checks at a, at a football club at 7 o'clock this morning. So um, because I only got back from Bath Rugby last night, having been working with the, the women's England team, I got back late last night. I basically had a an Americano, not a frappe mappuccino, <laughs> had a little coffee and I, I hit the road. And then when I got back, the uh, the poached eggs on toast was waiting for me. Well, let, let me rephrase it rather and suggest what 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 was what is your go to happy place when it comes to that morning breakfast? What do, what do you if you've got a bit of time on your hands? What do you make? It's certainly something around the eggs. So yeah. you know it would be a massive fan of omelets because. Huge fan of eggs from a protein perspective, but also then what you can add to it, whether you add some spinach, tomatoes, peppers. I think it's a real good way to add some loads of vitamins and things like that to a uh, yeah. to a breakfast. So I'm a big fan of of, of the humble egg. Unfortunately, my next door neighbour's got six chickens, so uh, I hop over the fence now and again and <laughs> swipe a few when they go out. So uh, yeah, I've got a great supply of chickens, eggs next door. Graham, I know there's plenty of um, sort of segues we can take into this discussion around weight loss and particularly performance in different sports. And I, I thank you very much for the insight you've given us into the sports that you have because it's obviously a very wide-ranging subject. If if you had to look on your career and, and think about what, what, what would you like to do in terms of sports that you've obviously covered rugby extensively, you obviously know a fair amount of the cycling space, is there is there one sport that you'd like to work with one day and say, oh, I'd, l- I'd love to work with that crowd? Yeah, you know, I've, I've wondered that myself, and it's one of these where I'd love to work in some US sports ones one day, mm. the NFL and things like that. Um, although I'm not sure my family would be that keen on uh, relocating, but I think some of them sports fascinate me, um, and I'd love to see how we could make a difference. But I think my biggest passion and it goes right back to where we started, is that I actually think sport nutrition is quite a simple science. I really do. And I think it's been massively overcomplicated by people trying to sell books or, you know, maybe sometimes thinking they're doing good, but actually promoting something that worked for them that isn't going to work for everyone and then getting quite evangelical about it. So I think my biggest passion is coming on things like this and trying to clear up some confusion because athletes have never been more confused. You know, you walk into a sports team now where they don't have sport nutrition support. And I think they're more confused than they were when I was a pro player 20, 25 years ago. So rather than maybe picking other sports, I think the key thing now is just to try and get this clarity of message across and try and 
simplify what has become a very complex science. Professor Graham Close, thanks very much for your time and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again on maybe more specific subjects down the road, but thank you very much. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsIPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>